Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of the AfriCast. My name is Brendan Lotz and joining me as always is Robin Chetty. Hey, how's it going? And Clinton Matos. Hello again everybody. Uh, how are you guys doing today? Because it is a bit overcast, so it's not as brutally hot as it has been the rest of the week. Uh, but how are you guys doing? Have had a good week so far? Um, I keep having my lights turned off for some reason. It keeps being uh, weird power cuts in my neighborhood. It's not load shedding and it's not me paying the electric bill. It's some other problems. Last night, the power went off for exactly two minutes. Um, that was fun. Are you sure it's not that you paid your bill? Because I see uh, Tswane and City of Joburg have been uh, cutting people off like it's going out of fashion. Yeah, but I don't think they'll cut me off for two minutes and be like, oh, he's gotten, he's gotten the message. <laughs> I don't think that's how they operate. I, might, I may be wrong, but uh, I don't think so. And yourself, Robin, suffered from any power cuts? Uh, thankfully not. I know it's a uh, financial year in for both of those uh, organizations, so they're on a, on a cutting spree. But yeah, luckily still have power. Um, it is swelteringly hot during the day, and then obviously afternoon time the showers help a bit. Uh, but yeah, that's life in Joburg, isn't it? Yeah. Um, hopefully, I, I don't get cut off by people. Although I do have to wonder, right? Some of these places, the figures that I've seen that they owe city power or the Tswane municipality um i don't know how they got to to figures that high it, it's actually quite scary to think that that's the level of just incompetence that nobody has chased up for so long that this amount is owed unisa was like 148 million what first of all how do you get that much and also um the reason i know it is because they put on twitter that they actually paid that amount out of nowhere <laughs> So that also, uh, you know, opens another question. Why does Unisa just have millions in, like, liquid funds available? They can just pay over. Surely, surely if you have that much money, you're putting it in an investment or at least, like, a, I don't know, a savings account. How did they just have so much money to give over? To money laundering. <laughs> and, it was, and it was only <laughs> one campus. It wasn't, like, all of Unisa, which has campuses all over the, the country. It was their one big campus that looks like a spaceship. So, yeah, opening lots of questions. Uh, I hope Saul <laughs> is reading these tweets and be like, hmm, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Right, let's get into uh, some news of the week, other than uh, municipalities shutting people off for owing millions and sometimes billions in power bills. Uh, Robin, there's some alarming news about Chrome and Firefox in version, of, version 100 of the browsers. Yeah, that's right. So, um, if anyone is old enough to remember, I2K millennium bug and how computers were all going to fail uh, the minute we reach the year 2000. Um, I think a lot of people spent a lot of money on <laughs> doomsday prepping, but uh, nothing happened, uh, which I guess is a good thing. Uh, this is kind of in the same vein. So uh, Chrome, Firefox, and Microsoft Edge, um, they're all shifting to version 100 of their browser. Um, these are kind of uh, routine updates that are always... Uh, carried out, and now they've reached, the, I guess, the triple digits. Um, now, normally that wouldn't necessarily be an issue, but it looks like it could potentially be for some websites. So Firefox, or who is owned by Mozilla, has done a bit of digging around and some experimentation as far as what the update to version 100 could mean for some websites. And uh, in its testing, there was a small amount of websites that crashed or were unaccessible as a result of it. 
but the websites themselves are some pretty significant ones. I think probably the largest would be Yahoo. Uh, I know that none of us really use Yahoo uh, much these days, but there are a whole bunch of kind of other services outside of the mail uh, that they are responsible for. Yahoo News is still a big thing, uh, depending on who you ask. Uh, another company that's website is struggling with compatibility is Bethesda, who is uh, set, well, yeah, so, as far as that's concerned, there are a few big names that could be impacted by this. Um, as far as what Mozilla and Google are doing, uh, they are looking to have experimental versions of the, the browsers. So for Google, that's Chrome Canary, and for Mozilla, that would be Firefox Nightly. Uh, they're going to be launching experimental versions and then beta versions for developers and uh, websites to test out. And then there will be a final stable version that they're looking to roll out. So. As far as the timeframes that people would need to worry about, um, for versions 100 of Chrome and Firefox, uh, they would be on the 29th of March and 3rd of May, respectively. Uh, the Edge browser is also expected to update to version 100 in March, uh, but you don't have a specific date as yet. And unfortunately, Microsoft hasn't been as forthcoming as far as experimentation and the potential impact on websites that shifting to version 100 could mean. Um, if you're running Safari, uh, there's nothing to worry about on that front. Um, but yeah, uh, a lot of, I guess, big name browsers uh, could potentially lead to websites having less traffic uh, in the coming months. So if you do own a website or you are a developer of some kind, please reach out to your respective websites and let them know that uh, there could be a problem, let's do some testing. Um, if you are interested in uh, seeing which websites are failing at the moment, as far as compatibility is concerned, uh, GitHub has a tracking website, which we have linked to in our own story. So you can have a look at uh, who is struggling. And yeah, uh, this isn't obviously on the scale of Y2K. Uh, I don't think people will be doing their prepping, but it is something that websites and website owners will need to be cognizant of over the coming months, unless uh, they want a lot of 404s on the on the in terms of the traffic. You would think that we would have figured out this is going to be a problem in future by now, given the the, the mass hype of Y2K. Um, like I, I genuinely thought that we would have learned our lesson then and accounted for the fact that sometimes numbers go higher than two digits, or sometimes there are more than one zero in, in a date. I mean, it just strikes me as odd that we haven't thought of this until now. Yeah, well, maybe I don't know. Maybe it's a, it's all a big plot to get people to do things like Y two K. Yeah, people are just buying all kinds of useless junk and <laughs> glow in the dark things. I don't know. Um, yeah, like you said, it's really odd that uh, these big brand uh, technology companies wouldn't have figured this out or ha have having to wait until essentially a month to go before warning everyone uh, in full. Uh, that said, I mean, obviously Firefox, or rather Mozilla, has been a bit more verbal as far as giving people a heads up. Uh, but yeah, um, you'd really think that this would be kind of a priority, especially for Microsoft Edge and Windows 11. So yeah. Oh, yeah, Windows 11. Clinton, you wanted to say something, sorry. Yeah, what's interesting is that Firefox isn't based on Chromium. So if you said, oh, it's a problem with Chromium that was causing this, um, then yeah, that would affect Chrome, but not Firefox. Firefox is one of the last big browsers that isn't Chromium-based. So it's it's surprising that they're having any issues. I wouldn't have thought 
they would, because like Robin said, surely they figured this out and they're not based on the same underlying tech. So yeah, no. so from what I've read, it seems to be a case of the fact that it's version one hundred. Um, and the concern is that if you run your code and there's a version 100 there, it might return a null or 10 instead of 100. So that could cause issues, break websites, all that sort of stuff. So I, mean, I can kind of understand why it's affecting so many browsers. But like I said, surely we've, we've realized that numbers go up at this point. Clearly not. Oh, no, the linear flow of time. <laughs> oh, no, what's happening? <laughs> things, are, things are getting bigger. Anyway, uh, some sad news, Clinton. Uh, Nintendo's closing down its eShop? It's closing down its eShop for its old consoles. It, it would be some real news if um, <laughs> Nintendo said, no more digital games. You have to buy physical <laughs> cartridges or sheets. I, I wouldn't put it past Nintendo. No, I, I wouldn't. I, and as I'll get to now, they make a lot of dumb decisions. So on um, March 2023... You will no longer be able to buy any games on the eShop. You'll also not be able to download any free software like demos for the now-aged Wii U or the 3DS. So that is kind of their death, their death day. They will just no longer be able to access the eShop or make any purchases, which um, which is really irritating. Um, you will still be able to download stuff you own. But as far as getting, I don't know, old new consoles and opening them and downloading new stuff, you will not be able to do that. Um, they've really given no reason for this other than the fact that, like I said, the linear flow of time, um, they say it's in you know the natural life cycle of hardware to be forgotten, which is really sucky. Um, there's some other important data on the 23rd of May 2022, later this year, uh, you'll no longer be able to use a credit card to add funds to your account for those two consoles. And on August 29th, um, 2022, you won't be able to use um, gift cards to add uh, funds to those wallets of those consoles. But they've given us a long, you know, forewarning. March 2023 is uh, more than a year away. And while we appreciate that, there will be hundreds, if not thousands, of games that will just no longer be accessible. And a lot of people have been saying, oh, why haven't you bought those games or downloaded those games before if you want? Well, there's two big reasons. One is that Nintendo has horrible pricing. A lot of people have been waiting like a decade for certain game series uh, to become affordable, and they haven't. Um, the other reason is, like I said, a lot of people have an interest in this retro tech, and they may be opening an old console for the first time. And also, just leave it up. <laughs> I'm sure it costs them money to maintain all of this, but this is just laziness and greed. They would rather save a small amount of money to just shut this thing down than pay the money to keep it open. And it's also just the, the sake of game preservation. There's going to be no way to access these games unless you happen to have an account that owns them. And something absolutely hilarious happened. Um, as soon as this news came out, somebody noticed... Um, that there was this section underneath the announcement, there was this uh, FAQ. And one of the questions was, um, you know, how can I get this game? And somebody said, this answer seems like a taunt. It says, we currently have no plans to offer classic content in other ways. Basically, Nintendo saying, uh, you know, go jump. We're not offering this. And a few hours after somebody pointed that out, they removed that from the oh, FAQ. Wow. So it was like, it's not even a slap in the face. It's a double slap in the face that they removed it. And I, I had such a laugh because Nintendo, 
is probably the biggest opponent to game piracy. Or I don't want to say game piracy. I want to say game emulation because that game emulation is a completely neutral, you know, activity. And Nintendo themselves themselves emulates their own games. And as I pointed out in the story, they emulate their games awfully. They offer a lot of games through Nintendo Switch Online and the awful value Nintendo Switch Online expansion pack. And the emulated games on there run poorly. They don't look as good. They don't have functionality like increased resolution or post-processing effects. I think they actually do have some post-processing effects where you can like mimic a TV scan lines or stuff like that. But emulation can be done well. But Nintendo is not a company that does emulation well. And Nintendo is saying, listen... Um, we're not going to give you any legal way to play these games. Uh, we're actually going to remove it completely. And then if you try and emulate it on your own dime, uh, we'll probably try and sue you or the people who are hosting that content. So uh, don't play any of our old games. Um, buy our new games, which cost a month's salary, and be happy with it. Or again, go jump. So all of this is brought back into light. Nintendo's awful consumer policies. It's awful game preservation policies. Um, the right to emulation, the gray area of uh, legality of emulation. And it's just been an awful time for everybody. At least they gave us one year's notice. Um, they could just put the games on the Switch and no one would care. It's, uh, I mean, how easy is it? Uh, I'm, I know it's not that easy, but you already have the game. You already have the code. They could even just emulate those old games on the Switch because that's what they do anyway. But no. Uh, come March next year, all of that's going away. If you really want a game and you want to play it on Nintendo hardware, you'll have to buy it before then and you'll have to download it. And how long will they allow people to re-download games? Who knows? Uh, they could also get rid of that. And then if you want games, you paid for tough... No, almost saw there. Tough luck. So yeah, that's the situation. It's just bad, but it happens with everything. And for some reason or another, we as the, um, the customers have just uh, come to accept it. On a whole, I don't see people, you know, going out and striking in the streets because Nintendo's doing this. Oh, quirky Nintendo. That's always the excuse. It's just a little indie company. Yeah, just a little indie company making the Zeldas and the Marios and all all the little games. They're just Nintendo, guys. Anyway, that's a bit sad. Uh, Some good news, though. That's just to end our new segment on a bit of a lighter note. Um, Xbox and PC gamers can get a bit of a discount on Game Pass uh, products. So on the 15th of uh, this month, uh, Game Pass got a price drop, although you wouldn't know it unless you were looking at the Xbox Game Pass website because uh, Microsoft still has not mentioned it at all in its official capacity. So if we go to the Xbox South Africa Twitter account, which is verified, there's no mention of this at all, Um, which is a bit weird because price drops are are usually good things that people want. Anyway, uh, Game Pass is now cheaper by a substantial margin. Uh, Xbox Game Pass, which used to retail for... Xbox Game Pass, which used to retail for 99 Rand, uh, now costs 79 Rand per month. Uh, PC Game Pass also was uh, 99 Rand and is now 79 Rand. Uh, and Game Pass Ult- Xbox Game Pass Ultimate is now 119 Rand, uh, down from 149 Rand. Um, 
Microsoft said, uh, gave us a rather boilerplate statement saying we regularly evaluate the price of Xbox Game Pass and Xbox Live Gold at a local level to best serve customers in each country. These price adjustments were informed and based on local market conditions in each country. Um, so not much to go off there, but I mean, it's, it's pretty cheap now. It's cheaper than the price of a standard Netflix subscription. Uh, I know you can get a mobile Netflix subscription that is far cheaper, but we're looking at the base standard Netflix subscription. This is way cheaper than that, and you get access to over 100 games. Um, so, yeah, if you're an Xbox gamer uh, and you haven't played Xbox, or you haven't used Xbox Game Pass, um, I don't think you have much of an excuse now. 79 Rand is, is incredible value for money. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I can't actually even think what I would rather spend 79 Rand on. What's funny is that uh, every time more games were added to Game Pass and every time it became more, you know, consumer friendly and mm. more enticing, a lot of people are saying, yeah, but they're probably going to jack up the price on us when yeah. they you know, hit a critical mass. And now they've done the opposite, which is hilarious. That being said, is this being done because South Africans still prefer to buy PlayStations? I, I honestly think that's the reason. The only other reason I could think of is that they've spent so much money acquiring game studios that they're like, hey, let's drop the price to try to get more sales. But I don't think so because um, if I'm not mistaken, Brendan, it's just South Africa that this yeah, is happening. To? Just South Africa. Um, at, at least right now. Maybe someone in South Africa, you know, did things a bit too early and they're going to be price drops around the world. But I doubt that. I honestly think overseas the price will actually go up. Um, Again, I, I just made fun of people saying the price will go up, and now I'm saying the price will go up with no evidence. But I, I, they have to make their money back eventually. I honestly think the accountants at Microsoft slash Xbox in South Africa keep seeing PlayStation being so successful, and they thought, how oh, can we get some of this back? Um, I don't know if you guys share that opinion. But I can't think of any other reason for them to do this, which is a bit sad. Um, nowadays, you have to think of some ulterior motive for a company to do something consumer friendly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to speculate, especially because Microsoft hasn't given us any official reasoning for why they've done this. Yeah. Um, it, it's just good news. Um, something I do want to bring up, though, is I wonder what engagement is like for Game Pass. Um, the reason I ask this is because there are just so many games on there. It, it kind of leads to a bit of decision fatigue. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this, Clinton, but sometimes I'll just sit looking at the Game Pass uh, catalog and just be like, "What? where do I start? What do, what do I want to play? I mean, right now, there's a couple of new arrivals, including uh, Total War, Warhammer 3. Should have just been called Total Warhammer Three. I still understand yeah. it to this day, but anyway, uh, Madden Twenty Twenty Two, Infernax, Ark, uh, Ultimate Survivor Edition, Edge of Eternity, Skull, and The Last Kids on Earth are a couple of new arrivals that were recently I've added. Been playing Skull, pretty oh, good. It's good. Yeah, it's, if you like roguelikes uh, and like two D um, uh, fighting games, two uh, D beat 'em ups, I should say. Uh, so I don't think I have decision fatigue. I think what I have is I find myself giving up on games earlier than I would have mm. because there's just so many to play. And if I'm playing a game and it doesn't like immediately hook me, I just, in the back of my head, I think there's there's an almost endless amount of other games I could be playing right now. And mm. if you're not going to hook me in the first like two hours, then I'm just going to give up on you. Now, I say that I don't know if I bought those games like on Steam or something, if I also would have given up on them as fast. 
But yeah, that's just a me problem. So yeah, not decision fatigue per se, but I am playing a lot more games and maybe some people will say that's a good thing, you know. Um, instead of like spending your money on a game you not, might not have enjoyed, you're just paying for Game Pass and you can try out these games before you uh, invest money or more time. Um, but like you said, Brendan, this is... I honestly can't think of anything bad to say about this. Every time we talk about the price of games and the price of consoles on this podcast, we talk about how good value Game Pass is. Mm. Um, and this is just, it's its good value again. Um, the price of a single game in South Africa is <laughs> now around like 1,500 Rand or 1,200 to 1,500. And now you can get like, like a year and a half of Game Pass for the same price as one new game, which is, it's so, it's so insane. And the value is just getting better every day. And again, I keep telling people the Xbox Series S is the best value gaming uh, in the country. And the the Series X is the best value next gen gaming in the country. And Xbox continues to back me up on that. Right. Uh, Let's stop talking about Xbox and start talking about PlayStation because today sees the launch of one of perhaps one of the most highly anticipated titles for the PlayStation, uh, Horizon Forbidden West from Guerrilla Games. Uh, Robin, you reviewed the game. We'll get that. We'll get into the review a little bit. Um, maybe you do want to just chat us through uh, what this game is about for starters. Yeah, so um, anyone that's played the... Horizon Zero Dawn. Uh, this is the sequel. It's gone through a couple of delays, but now it's finally here. And we got to review it on the PlayStation 5, which I think the PS4 version, from what I've read, um, is pretty solid. Uh, but PS5 is obviously the optimum experience. Uh, and we'll, we'll touch on that shortly. Um, as far as where this game picks up from, it's essentially six months after the events of Zero Dawn after the protagonist Aloy has uh, saved the city of Meridian. And um, it looks like her efforts were slightly in vain because there's a new threat that she thought she had taken care of that she must now venture into the Forbidden West in order to sort out. Um, And yeah, that's kind of where things pick up from. And this... I'm not prone to hyperbole, but I would just say that this is potentially top three most beautiful games that I've played on a console, Um, just as far as the graphics performance uh, perspective goes. uh, You can kind of see the screenshots and and, and video gameplay footage online already. This is just a beautiful game. And the... I was fortunate enough to also have a Sony Bravia TV in for review, a nice big 65-inch one uh, that supported HDR10. I was able to set that up as well, and it it is chef's kiss amazing uh, as, as far as the visuals go. Um, but I'm sure you guys have plenty of questions as far as, as the game is concerned. Yeah, so I think my first question is, do I have to have played the first one in order to understand what's going on in this one? You don't have to have played, but I suggest you do, purely for the fact that one Zero Dawn is a good game. Uh, in general, but also the way that uh, Forbidden West kicks off is quite uh, a little bit jarring for some that aren't necessarily uh, familiar with the franchise. So having that kind of background and understanding and also just kind of getting the experience of what Halo has done up until that point because a journey through Zero Dawn has kind of been an outcast 
to now being a savior in Forbidden West is a, is a really nice story to kind of play through. Um, so yeah, I think from that perspective, you you should definitely play it. There's also a lot of relationships inside the game that warrant having some background around. And if you've played Zero Dawn, you kind of t tick that box as far as knowing the different relationships uh, as far as Aloy is concerned and kind of her progression as, as a character throughout the franchise. Um, when you start the game, does it give you an option to do a story recap? I know some sequels do that. Yeah, so there's no option to do a story recap. It just does it for you. It's ah. maybe a three-minute long clip uh, that kind of recaps what happens in the original game, uh, specifically focusing on the kind of new threat that is, is facing Earth and what Aloy had to kind of tackle. Okay. And, um, yeah, I have been looking at, at, um, at this game's uh, the, the trailers and stuff like that. I agree with you how nice it looks just from the trailers. Um, I'm surprised you didn't say, oh, but the, the Last of Us 2 still looks better. I know you said top three. I don't know if you had uh, The Last of Us in mind with the, uh, the top of the charts for that. Uh, I would say Last of Us 2 is up there. I think because of the game is so, uh, I guess, emotionally draining, and it gives you several gut punches throughout. You perhaps are distracted, not necessarily focusing so much on how it looks. I would say that something like God of War, uh, oh, yeah. that's, that's, that's kind of up there with this. Uh, same for Ghost of Tsushima. I know that one's probably a bit more stylized. Yeah. And I know that those two titles were both kind of PS4 specific releases. But yeah, I, I kind of lump it into that kind of category as far as just a beautiful AAA game is concerned. Yeah. Some, I will let you get to just general thoughts on it. And, uh, just one more question I wanted to ask is, um, are all your abilities and unlocks from the last game gone? Uh, pretty much. You kind of, I wouldn't say you start from scratch. Uh, you do have a fairly solid spear, but uh, I think I'll probably touch on the leveling up and progression of your skills and, and that kind of stuff uh, but later on. But yeah, you don't start from scratch, but you aren't as, I guess, decked out as far as skills are when you complete Zero Dawn and when you start Forbidden West. Yeah, it's a, it's a problem with open world games that a big focus is on you progressing as a character and you making a difference in the world. And then when they make a sequel, which has the same characters in the same environment, they're like, oh, well, <laughs> you're, we have to kind of nerf you. Otherwise, <laughs> um, we won't have any progression to offer you. Which is funny, we mentioned God of War, and it's a bit of a meme that in every God of War di uh, game, Kratos dies so you can lose all your powers. Yeah. And it, 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 it's a meme, but it's also one of the most accurate things because the, uh, the writers of the previous games just... It, they, they really used it as a crutch. It's hilarious in those games. Anyway, Robin, uh, tell us about your, uh, your journey so far. So, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Bryn. Yeah, I just wanted to ask. So um, something that I really appreciated about the, uh, the first game um, was how you kind of got this sense that you were walking through old cities and old kind of places where humanity was flourishing. Do you get that same sort of uh, feeling when you're walking through the environment in this game? Do you, are there like landmarks that you might be able to recognize from when humanity was the dominant species on Earth? Yeah, so there are, um, I guess, ruins and remnants of, I guess, what would be modern-day society, but uh, obviously ancient for as far as Aloy is concerned. Um, there is one structure in the game 
that looks very much like the Golden Gate Bridge, but it's not the Golden Gate Bridge. But oh. I mean, I mean, come on, is it not the Golden Gate Bridge? Well, you see, the, see, the problem with that is that they can't say that it's the Golden Gate Bridge because then they need to get all sorts of rights to call it the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. So I mean, there are kind of those little touches. Um, we, for example, uh, I don't, I don't think this is a spoiler, but one of the aspects of the game when you're first uh, encountering. The Tanakh tribe is a kind of old war museum. Yeah. And you kind of walk around through that. And obviously, it's not meant to be like the Smithsonian or something like oh, to that effect. Yeah. But that kind of informs uh, a lot of the mythology and the beliefs of that tribe. Um, there are holograms, mm. the broken holograms in, the, in this museum that play messages and have visuals that inform their beliefs about the Ten which are, I guess, tenets of a, of a warrior class and kind of that kind of informs how the Tanakh tribe are a very kind of fierce group of warriors and they, they welcome confrontation, they thrive off of it. Um, so yeah, that, that, that kind of uh, one kind of aspect as far as remnants of current society within the game. Okay. Um, kind of reminds me of uh, the Division 2 where you go on a few missions inside of a war museum and the setting in is really cool. It's, it's not to the same degree, like there's no bandits who have taken on the uh, the exhibits as part of their life in religion. But I, I don't know, do you, I think both of you played the Division 2. You go, do you guys remember that part in the museum? Yep. Best yeah, mission in the, the Division 2. Yeah, it was really great. So cool that they... I don't want to say they're using the same idea. It's it's a similar, like, convergent concept. Yeah. Okay, Robin, do you want to tell us what your journey through the game has been like? Like, wh what what are some things that stand out for you in terms of the progression and the storytelling throughout the game? So, again, as far as visuals, I can't talk up how beautiful this game is, uh, specifically around some of the environmental elements. So snowfall, rainfall, uh, water in particular, there are a lot of, there are quite a few missions where you're underwater and kind of, it is, it is kind of, again, I, don't, I try not to be too grandiose as far as comparison is concerned, but these are really beautiful settings and you can almost kind of get lost a bit as far as what's happening around you and not kind of focusing on your mission. You just want to kind of drink it all in. Mm. Um, so as, as, as far as that's concerned, I'm sure that the photo mode in this game is going to be used constantly. It is very much like Ghost of Tsushima in, the, in that respect where you can tailor different settings and elements uh, to kind of create what you want to. Also kind of very similar to Spider-Man's uh, Miles Morales as far as that kind of photo mode is concerned. So I, I'm just fully suspecting plenty of great screenshots to be, to be shown uh, in the coming days and weeks uh, following the game's release. Um, so yeah, in terms of the visuals, the uh, Guerrilla Games has hit out the park again. Zero Dawn is also uh, just a beautiful game to play and kind of get kind of get immerse yourself in. Um, but that's kind of, I guess I don't want to say it's a negative, but but it it, it kind of it's juxtaposed to the almost grinding nature of the gameplay. Mm. So there is obviously a main campaign. And that's pretty exhaustive as far as going to different checkpoints and almost these little mini quests you have to go on just to complete the one central quest. Yeah. So it can get quite grinding. I mean, um, 
One of the other elements that I wasn't necessarily too keen on were the conversations that Aloy has with many of the characters in the game. Um, obviously, these kind of cutscenes are there in order to add context to also to kind of drive Aloy as far as her mission is concerned and, and what she needs to achieve in the game. But they also have a lot of uh, conversation options. And you can, for example, get into those and get a bit more information as far as the law of this world is concerned and kind of what Aloy's relationship is with to these characters. But I often find myself trying to skip everything that was unessential because I wanted to get to the actual gameplay itself mm. and kind of get that, that sense from the writing and the voice acting of Aloy. She seems almost dismissive of other people's concerns because she's solely focused on fixing what she deems was a mistake that she, she created in the first game. And now she has to rectify in this game. So it is, I guess, a nod to the writers as far as kind of building that into the character. But also at the same time, it can feel a little grating uh, to have to kind of slog through a lot of dialogue in order to kind of see what your next objective is. So from that perspective, it is a little bit vexing. Uh, the same goes for the level progression. So in order to take on certain machines or even to enter specific areas of the game, you have to have reached a certain level, mm. which I find a little bit irritating. Um, often with games like this where there are plenty of side quests or there are collectibles, a lot of objectives apart from this, the main uh, campaign to do. I find that really irritating because I just want to play the campaign and then I can return to the side quest if I want mm. to. Um, for this, in order to level up, you have to you have to complete side quests as well along the way. Um, if you can if you continue on the main campaign, you will only level up so far. Um, this is really irritating. At one point, um, one of the objectives I have to retrieve something from uh, a kind of walled off section of the map, and I can only access it with a special tool that I can only get if I've reached a specific level. But I've already reached that point in the game just through normal gameplay. I haven't yeah. had to I haven't had to do side quests before that, so I find that a little bit irritating. Um, I do find that I do mm -hmm. find that mechanic really, really annoying because uh, I mean, like I'm I I love grindy games. I love Division. I love Destiny too. But I think that in a game like this, where you have like points where you need to do something, that should be accomplished, or you should be able to accomplish that by just normal gameplay. I think it was also a problem with uh, the recent Assassin's Creed games where you need to do something in order to do something else, but you're not high enough level to do that thing. So you have to go off and do side missions. Um, and to that end, Robin, what is the quality of these side missions like? Are they good at least, or do they, do they just feel like a slog as you've already mentioned? Um, there are a few missions that are exciting. I think for the most part though, it's kind of go to this area uh, eliminate the enemy or stop the enemy from doing something or just collect an item from a machine. That's kind of what they, I, I don't want to overgeneralize, but that's kind of what they boil down to. It's go to this area, collect something, bring it back. Oh, you're actually missing something else. Please go <laughs> to that area and collect, collect another thing. So um, initially, when you kind of start out the game, I understand that it's there for a reason. It's kind of to introduce you to new gameplay elements or new weapons and stuff yeah. like that, which is great. But after a while, like I said, it, it kind of gets a little bit grating. It, it's kind of the, one of the reasons why I loved Ghost of Tsushima so much is those side missions 
could be put to the side. They could be put to the back burner while you focus on the main campaign. Yeah. And then you can return to it and then tick off all your completionist boxes. Uh, that's not necessarily the case yet. Um, uh, the, the point I was mentioning with regards to that kind of walled off area, I think I was around level 18 or 19. I could only access it if I was level 24 or higher. Mm. So I had to do about three or four side missions in order to get the necessary levels in order to then get the tool just to open up that area. So, Have yeah, developers was... not learned since Anthem? Because Anthem did the same thing where it was like, oh, play the main story, you'll be fine. And then all of a sudden the, the campaign just grinded to a halt because you needed to go off and do some, some stuff in the world. And it didn't work. People stopped playing the game. So I've always, why are you doing this, Gorilla Games? I've always thought that the best way to do this is just to put a recommended level for a mission or an area, and then you say to the player, listen, this is what we recommend, but if you want to just, you know, YOLO run in there and try it out at a lower level, go ahead. Because a lot of the times, it is just a recommendation, and you can do it at a lower level. So I've always thought that's a much better implementation of this system. I don't know why more games don't do it. And it's funny because I just played um, Pokemon Legends Arceus. And in that game, it doesn't really have areas that are gated off by level. Um, but as you start walking around, you'll notice that in certain areas, the Pokemon are much stronger. And they will absolutely destroy you. But there's also nothing stopping you from just rolling up and fighting them, you know, and and trying to win and sometimes you do win and that's why it's good because you you feel like the underdog sometimes and there's not some electronic middleman in the middle saying uh hey you you need to be this tall to go on the ride so i i prefer yeah, it, it does it like that yeah i think it was, it was a really frustrating element of the game because like you mentioned i can for example go to areas and get my ass kicked by machines um because i'm not at a high enough level but then, uh, then allow me the same ability to do it when I get to that walled off area. If I get my ass kicked, then I've learned my lesson. I can go and grind to a higher level if need be. But rather let me slug it out the other way than have to grind out first and then go into. So yeah, that, that was kind of one aspect of the gameplay that I, I wasn't really a fan of. And I think, if I remember correctly, uh, I'm not too sure who reviewed the uh, Zero Dawn for Hypertext, but that was very much the same kind of feeling, is that this was a really beautiful game, but the grind uh, detracted a bit uh, as far as the aesthetics went. And I, I guess that's kind of my kind of experience with the game as well. Um, so yeah, it is very much a game for, for people that don't mind having Taskmasters uh, and having to grind a lot. One thing interesting is that going back to that old game, I remember when I played it, I also got really tired of the dialogue. Um, this is a very unique world, and I think the main story of the first game is also really intriguing, and I found myself kind of rushing the story in that first game to learn more about it. But then this is balanced out by the fact that those side missions and those character interactions are so much less interesting. And I started the game, and I was listening to everybody. I was doing side quests and everything. And then when I got to the end, like you said, Robin, I was just like, oh, my God, <laughs> I don't want to hear you talk anymore. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm a bit disappointed that these are problems from the first game that they, they didn't seem to address at all. Yeah, well, I guess the first game was such a success that perhaps if the formula isn't broken, we don't necessarily have to fix yeah. it. Yeah, Maybe they just thought, let's take the approach of more is more and not... Uh, looking into cutting the fat. I'm sure there's lots of people like, oh, my favorite side mission in the first game was this. And I really like talking to those people, but 
it's not just us who brought up these problems. I saw a lot of other reviewers of that first game talk about it. So not sure why they didn't do anything about it. Yeah, and I mean, the reviews for this game as well, it was going to be mixed in that respect. Um, and perhaps it's just a symptom of being reviewers. We have to get through a game within a certain amount of time. Luckily, we were given two weeks with this title, um, uh, thanks to uh, local distributor Gamefinity, so thanks for that. Uh, but even two weeks is a really hard push as far as getting through the game in that, in that a lot of time, especially when you have other work to do. So... I don't know, maybe if I didn't have to review the game and I was just playing it for the love of playing it, then I wouldn't have necessarily have to have been so uh, vexed by the, by the grind. Um, yeah, I, I guess it's probably just one of those symptoms of, uh, of being a reviewer. So, Robin, I want to chat a bit about um, gameplay moving away from uh, the, the, the quest and that sort of thing and talk about, um, well, two things in particular. First one I want to talk about is traversal. Of the environment and then the second one i want to talk about is enemies in the the arsenal that you have available to you in terms of traversal one of the things that i kind of got annoyed with um in terms of horizon zero dawn was just how big the area was and how long it took you to move through places um how quickly do you get something that helps you move at a bit more of a pace in terms of this game so the big tool that I don't know if it's right terminology. Uh, the, the, the big item that you have to, to at your disposal now is a glider. So if you are moving from a higher, higher ground to lower ground, a glider really helps as far as uh, chewing up vast amounts of space. Um, but <laughs> I guess doing it uh, conversely, going from lower to higher, it's still going to be a bit of a slog. You can, for example, do kind of a, almost like a Spider-Man-esque uh, uh, attaching to a specific point if there is one available and then yeah. uh, quickly flying up there. Um, but a lot of the time you are going to be climbing a lot. Um, that said, I really love the kind of almost intuitive nature with which Aloy is able to scale objects and specifically cliffs and mountain faces. Mm. Um, you're going to have to toggle your, your focus, which is a little triangular device that sits on the side of a head. And you toggle that on and off to kind of, one, get information about the environment around you, as well as the machines, but also you get to, you can actually see different points where you are able to climb and where you can't climb. That said, it is really weird, though. Um, I was climbing up what seemed to be a sheer mountain face uh, yeah. with this tool. But then something simple like a, the normal building structure, I couldn't climb up. Oh, so, okay. So it does feel... There is a great, uh, there's, there's a lot of room to move in this game, but at the same time, there are. It, it does feel a bit like you're on tracks at the same time. So you can explore as much as you want to, but only where the developers have deemed it appropriate. So yeah. it is a little bit weird in that respect. It's, it's not. It's near Assassin's Creed S level as far as traversal goes, but just not quite there yet. Yeah, you still need to uh, climb up tall next to unlock part of the map uh yep and oh uh, it, it's never straightforward uh, i think i spent a good half an hour trying to climb up one tall neck i had to kill several of these like baboon type machines almost died a couple times uh and yeah it, it, it again it's a bit of a grind and i'm not too sure if it's necessarily as rewarding in this uh game as it was in the previous one Yes, it kind of opens up the map as far as what else is, is, is around in the immediate area, so I can see what 
other machines around what uh, area, what uh, kind of little points I can explore. Up. But in general, it is it is it is kind of grinding. I mean, there's initial time that you have to climb a tall neck just to kind of achieve that within, I guess, a completionist checklist. But other times, if it wasn't necessary, I would just let the tall neck kind of go, and, yeah. and I would return to that as part of kind of the end game stuff. I just, something that sorry, ahead, I just want to I just want to butt in here, but. So when I played the first Horizon, the first tall neck that you have to scale, um, I actually fell down and died, uh, and that just that just made me so angry that I stopped playing the game for a couple of weeks um, because I couldn't progress beyond that, and because it had taken me like fifteen minutes to get up this damn thing. Uh, when I fell and died, I was just like, nope, 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 nope. So I, I'm really disappointed to hear that they've kept this um, Ubisoft. Please go and scale the radio tower to help it's us. It's a radio tower, on. just in another name. <laughs> it is a radio. You're right. It's it's just a radio tower in another name. And I hate that mechanic. It is, to this day, the worst thing. Stop doing it. We don't need radio towers in games. Sorry, Clinton, <laughs> you wanted to say something. What I wanted to say is um, something that the first game had an advantage in over the sequel is that the first time you saw a tall neck and the first time you interacted with it, it had that moment of awe because... Yeah. Up until then, you've been fighting giant robot dinosaurs, of course, but this is the biggest one by mm. far. It's like the size. I remember the area you see the first one, you're around some ruins of giant yeah. buildings, and the tall neck is still bigger than those. So it was a real, like, um, shock and awe moment. And uh, it was a great moment in the game. And then you had to climb it as well, which was, you know, on top of that, another another surprise and it was also a surprise that it wasn't um, hostile to you because most of the robots in the game are hostile so it was this combination of discovery and finding something new that's interesting and that this game just doesn't have that because i imagine most people playing have already played the first game and they're just going to be like oh yeah it's a tall neck you no, know no, I've, I've, this. I've, I've climbed up a lot of them i've been frustrated by a lot yeah. of them before. you don't have a lot to offer me um robin in terms of new robot dinosaurs um what have you been seeing, and have they been interesting? Yeah, there are plenty. Um, the, I guess the, the kind of bigger ones, um, You in, in the opening stanza of the game, you take on a Slitherfang, which is essentially a giant cobra-type uh, machine. Why? Uh, it takes... Why, why, would, why would you do this to me? <laughs> oh. It sounds like they named these after, um, like, Avatar. They used to just combine two words with animals in there. You, you mentioned that there was actually um, a little bit piece of dialogue where uh, Aloy is trying to come up with a name for this new machine she encounters, and she's just like, uh, uh, just takes two words, puts it together, like, oh, okay, we'll just call it that. So <laughs> there is, I guess, a, a kind of weird naming nomenclature that they use for these for these uh, machines. Um, but yeah, there, there were, I guess, some interesting. What I like about it, about this version, or well, this sequel, is that you are now able to override more machines. Ooh. So, so uh, you mentioned abilities that you kind of start off with. You are able to override a charger, which is essentially like a, a big RAM-looking mm. machine, and you're able to use that to cover um, vast amounts of ground. Uh, talking about traversal again, um, you are able to override large machines. You are able to override flying machines. Ooh. But, oh, but, 
Here it comes. Yeah. Uh, to, in order to do so, you have to craft uh, the skill to do so. So you have to collect a lot of rare elements, and you have to do research on the actual uh, machine itself first before you can override it. So uh, one of the first ones you're able to override is called a uh, Grimhorn, which is a Triceratops-looking machine. Um, but in order to kind of craft that skill, you have to get a lot of resources. So um, again, if, if you're playing through it for the first time and you want to get through the campaign first, you're probably going to want to leave this stuff for the end game. Um, mm. That said, uh, when you override a flying machine and kind of flying over this world that Guerrilla Games has created, that is amazing. But <laughs> it obviously takes a very, very long time to kind of get to that level because uh, as far as overriding is concerned, um, not all of the machines that you've encountered or that you've got an inf intel on will appear as available to override first. Again, it is level-based. So, unfortunately, there's a grind to it. It's a really rewarding element of the gameplay, but it is a it, it, it's going to be a, a hell of a grind. Uh, and then in terms of weaponry, do you have anything new and exciting uh, in terms of weapons you have? I, I you already mentioned the spear. Is there anything else that's not going to spoil, obviously? Um, I guess they're all derivatives of the same kind of weapons. So there are different types of spears that you can get from different tribes, um, each kind of with their own advantages and disadvantages. Um, there are different types of bows you can get. Um, you get your kind of normal hunter bow that will, I guess, is your all-purpose bow. But you get uh, the Tanakh tribes have, I think, two or three different types of bows that have different types of explosives. They also, uh, some are acid-based or de deliver almost like an EMP pulse. Uh, some of them also deliver electric bolts. So I guess they aren't necessarily new weapons as in like something brand new, but they are new derivatives of existing kind of weapons. Okay. Um. Is can you still cheese explosive traps? Because I remember in the late game, um, it kind of became a dawdle where you would just set a hundred explosive traps and you would snipe something from far away, they would walk into the trap and it was just game over for them because a hundred explosions would go off at once. Yeah, so, so, so traps are still a big thing, yeah. Um, I don't find myself, I didn't find myself using it so much in the campaign. Um, the side missions, and I guess when you have a bit of time, you can do so. But uh, this time around, it's more about avoiding traps than uh, kind of setting up your own, especially when you head into the Tanakh territory, which I guess there's a rebel group within the Tanakhs um, that uh, I guess the one of the antagonists for the game. Um, some, speaking of the, the rebels, I remember in the early, um, in the early promotions, uh, they really hyped up the Tremor Tusk, and that was kind of the poster robot dinosaur for the game and it was also i think if you bought a, the different collector's edition you actually got a statuette so was fighting tremor tusks cool and also the uh, the ones that they had kind of kitted out um with weapons and stuff like that i assume those were like boss fights or mini boss fights were those fun um so i think you encounter if i remember correctly i think you encounter only three of them as far as uh you must uh, engage with this machine kind of aspect of the game. Um, the first time you do tackle one of them, it isn't necessarily all that exciting, purely um, because in the environment itself, there are a bunch of weapons, like uh, almost like giant catapults and giant 
uh, a giant crossbow that you can use to your advantage when you are fighting the game later on, when you're in, in almost like a uh, any islands or kind of beach kind of area. That is a lot more. Uh, that, that requires a lot more skill as far as your your different levels. So initially, when you fight it, it's not necessarily that tough. But later on, when you're kind of in the heart of the, the rebel kind of tribe, it is really really tough. So there aren't a lot of encounters with the Trimatusk, but uh, a few of them are really really daunting. Uh, so I just want to wrap up here, Robin. Um, to to sum up, um, would you recommend buying, waiting for a sale, skipping, or waiting for a contest to win the game? Um, I would say buy right now if you have the PS Five. Uh, like I said, visually, it is my in my feeling the preferred version of the game you want to play right now. Um, yeah, I, I don't see any reason to wait for it for a sale. I'm sure there will be a sale down the line. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's one of the games you should pick up now, especially with the amount of PS5 exclusive. Well, I wouldn't say PS5, sorry. PlayStation exclusives at the moment. Mm. Um, they're, they're kind of few and far between. Uh, we don't know when God of War Ragnarok, for example, is coming out this year. Um, so yeah, I would say definitely pick it up because it is worthwhile playing. Just keep in mind that there will be a grind involved. And if you are into that kind of thing, this will be right up your alley. If not, um, you may want to hold off a bit and kind of see what other people are saying about the game. Uh, and it's, it's, I'm just reading through your review here. The standard edition costs 1,369 Rand, um, which is, is very expensive. But I suppose it, it's all relative to the type, you get, type of game you're getting. And yeah. Sounds like a bit of a grind, but I mean, if you have a PlayStation Five and you've got some time on your hands, I also don't expect people to be buying this game thinking that they're going to play it for five minutes and be done. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty good. I, I think the uh, the first game, the kind of reputation that early games kind of made for itself with that game, um, I'm sure there'll be plenty of interest in this. Uh, and yeah, I think as far as PlayStation exclusives, AAA titles specifically, mm. it kind of sets the standard from a visual perspective. Uh, the gameplay, uh, I've seen a lot of this in other kind of games of this ilk. Uh, that said, uh, I like I really like Aloy as a protagonist. Um, she's a lot more complicated and more well-rounded than some of the protagonists I've encountered recently. I'm looking at you, Dying Light 2, <laughs> if you're a very generic dude that you play as. Um, so yeah, uh, it, it ticks a lot of the boxes. It's just, I really wish they kind of paced, pasted better as far as having to grind. That's a kind of really big, big sticking point for me. Well, maybe post launch people will complain and they'll make some adjustment adjustments to how XP is earned and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, good recommendation. You can find Robin's full review of Dying Light Forbidden West, of Dying Light Forbidden West. Listen to me. <laughs> oh, there's too many games. February's too busy. Horizon Forbidden West uh, in the links below. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm keen to keen to see how this game performs once it's, oh, I mean, it's out now. Um, I'm keen to see what it's like uh, once the general public has its hands on it. I'm excited for it to inevitably come to PC. 
Um, like because... five years. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it's a bit sooner than that. Cause... Yeah, I. I think Sony's making so much money off of the ports that have come to Steam. Mm-hmm. They have to be looking at their, their games and be like, oh, you know, one or two won't hurt to increase the quarterly sales, you know? I mean, a year from now would be, I think it would be good. Drum up some more hype yeah. if, for people who haven't got a PlayStation 5 yet. might be a good way. Yeah. But yeah, um, it seems like a really good game, a really good sequel. Um, and uh, check it out. Check out our review. And uh, if you've got a spare 1,369 Rand lying around... Or, or, Brendan, if you have a spare, um, 1,379 Rand, you can buy the Lego Tallneck, which is coming out in May. <laughs> and I'm not saying this because I, I work for Lego. I'm saying it because I'm addicted to it. And uh, I just saw the local the localized pricing. The, they're making a Lego set of the Tallneck. It looks so cool. Is it, this... It's really it's so nice, yeah. I, I know we're in we're in the wrap up of this podcast, but didn't um was wasn't there like some independent dude who created plans to build that originally? Yeah, there there was a few. There's been a few. We actually featured one too on the site. That was just like a fan creation, but that was like, you know, for the love of the game, yeah. I made this. This is really cool. Here's the instructions to make it. Um, he wasn't selling them at all. Um, okay. And actually, if I remember right, um, Gorilla actually got in contact with him. Uh, and he, uh, they bought the parts to make their own, and they sent him like the thanks. And even Hideo Kojima um, made his yeah. own. Which, oh man, can you imagine how cool it would be if Hideo Kojima found something you made? And like, I don't know if he just gave it to his secretary and we like find me the parts <laughs> to make. It. Um, but I, I think Hideo Kojima is the type of person who went, goes on. So there's a site called Bricklink which you can buy secondhand parts. He probably has an account there, and he's like, oh, which store has the best sale on these parts? <laughs> probably put it I, I don't know the man obviously but i it seems to me like that's something he would do um i think i covered that when it happened but yeah now they're making an official one they obviously see that there's a big um there's a big market for this and one small south african retailer has uh, just put out the price because it hasn't been revealed yet yeah, awesome cool oh sorry one last yes. thing yeah if you don't have the money uh-huh. watch this space because we might have something that you'd be interested in i can't fully disclose it now but it involves aloy it involves a hoodie go and check out twitter because there, there's yes. another there's a, there's a massive hint on our twitter profile so go and check it out um but yeah uh keep keep your eye glued on hypertext we'll have some more news about horizon forbidden west not dying light forbidden west although that would actually be a pretty good game just saying um but we're gonna wrap it up uh for this edition of the africos thank you so much for tuning in um from myself brendan lodge cheerio from clizamatos everybody and from robin lichetti thank you everyone we'll see you next week bye-bye bye cheers Sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.